As we continue in the study of the book of Exodus, we took note last week when we did chapter 1 that between the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus, there's been about 350 years during those, between those times of, of, uh, of acknowledgement of what we're talking about here. 350 years of time. It's long enough for any nation, including this nation, to forget their past. To forget what that nation has gone through and what that nation was built upon. Now remember that with the significance of how the Hebrews found themselves in the nation or in the land of Egypt was always was brought about by the hand of God. Now they thought it was the fact that this man named Joseph appeared and that somehow God gave Joseph this knowledge to understand that there was this great famine that was going to take place and that they had to be wise in making sure they store up the food and everything else to survive the famine. Well, God had a bigger plan than just getting them through a famine, didn't they? God was preserving the nation of Israel in Egypt for a time when he would bring them out and bring them into the promised land that was promised to Abraham from the beginning in Genesis. And so they didn't know all of that. And so, but that king, that pharaoh at the time knew completely who Joseph was and raised him up to the most second most powerful man in the nation of Egypt, even though he was a Hebrew, a Hebrew slave at one moment, and then he became uh, the second most powerful man, leading and, and running over the entire operations of Israel, the nation of Israel, all the resources he was over, overseeing. And everyone knew who he was, and he knew his family who was placed up there in Goshen to rise up and to, to live there according to the way God was designing it. But now 350 years have passed. There's been new pharaohs, and a new pharaoh came onto the scene, as if you remember last week. He came onto the scene who did not know Joseph and did not know the Hebrew people, the Israels. And the Israelites were growing in knowledge and blessing them in prosperity. God was blessing them, and they became a very large nation of themselves within the Egyptian world. And this new king, this new pharaoh, did not like competition. He did not like the fact that he now felt threatened because the people were growing larger than his, the Egyptian people, and he saw how he could possibly be overthrown, and out of fear, he was worried about losing his, his um, position as God as they treated pharaohs at that time. Or if that, they would then join with their enemies and come against them. It, either way, they were fearful. And if you remember in chapter 1, he tried a three-way three approach to try to stop them from being prosperous and growing as a, as a, as a people. Remember the first way, he, they turned around and they suppressed them. They deprived them. They, they made them poor. They made them slaves. They worked them to death so that they couldn't prosper or they couldn't have more children. They would be just worn out to be able to grow. And they would die off of whatever reason. Didn't work. God turned around through all that slavery, through all that oppression, through all that, 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 uh, that working of, uh, of, uh, to the nth degree, God actually strengthened those people and they grew even more mightier. 
So he came up with plan B, if you remember. He said, let's go on the inside of the camp of the Hebrews. How can I stop all this growth? And he went to the Hebrew maidservants or the uh, midwives, excuse me, midwives, and said to them, every time there was a baby born, if it's a boy, kill the baby. But the Hebrew midwives feared God more than the government, more than civil law, more than the leader of that nation, that Pharaoh. And God helped them bring and work a way around that, that demand and turn around and actually bless them on top of it and allow them to have their own families and have their own children and actually have children in the time of this, this, this uh, crisis. So, but Pharaoh didn't stop there. He went to the next degree and he had an order placed out there. And the order, order was a land, a law on the land that says, you Egyptians, if you see any Hebrew baby boys born, throw them in the river. So now you have the entire nation of, of, the, of the Egyptians who did not like the Hebrews. They didn't want anything to do with the Hebrews. They were very racist against those Hebrews. They didn't intermingle. They didn't intermarriage. They were just set up apart. They didn't know how they got there, but they just kind of forgot about them up there until they got too large. But they were happy to oblige by the law of the land of Pharaoh. But we saw that that didn't work as well, and they continued to grow. This is where our story continues here, where God continues to bless the people of Israel. The numbers continue to increase dramatically. This new Pharaoh had no idea what to do and how to do it. Nothing's working. And then we see now in our story here, in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says here, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when he saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him for three months. Now we see here that this young baby that was going to be born, this born the son, that conceived here between two Jewish Hebrew people, a man and a woman here, they come and they take a step of faith to get married in that time of crisis. But not only do they get married, they took a step of faith and still went and had babies, or in this case, had this child that is now born in a time when there's a possibility that they could have a boy and that boy would be killed. That's tremendous faith because these two people that we're talking about, this man and this, this daughter of a Levi, was named Aram and Jochebed. They, we see their names given to us in Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, the names of these two believing Hebrew people. And they come together by his parents, and God blesses them, and, and she bears a son. Now think about this. This son we now know, we don't know what his name was that these two people, these parents gave that child. He never gives us a name. But we know later on here in our scripture that the Pharaoh's daughter who's going to raise him gives him a name by the name of Moses. Now Moses, God's bringing into this world at a time when he opens his eyes, he's opening his eyes into unfriendly worlds. He's coming in where there's this most powerful nation that he's going to be raised up in, in a foreign land that's oppressing and very racist against the nation that he was born from. 
And that's what Moses is going to be facing as a young child coming into this world, very unrest. Nevertheless, Moses had something special about him that the parents acknowledged and saw that he was a beautiful child and she protected that boy for three months from the Egyptians that were watching and maybe any Hebrew people that were thinking they were loyal to the Egyptians in any form. Everyone was watching and looking at every woman who was pregnant. Somehow, someway, God miraculously gave her the strength and the faith to say, I'm going to protect this baby regardless of what the government tells me. And that God is going to protect me because, remember, if they found out they kept that baby boy, they all die. Not just the baby, but they all die. The baby's going to be thrown in the river, but they all are going against Pharaoh, who is his word was everything. Now, I want to encourage you because we get in a time of the world like we are today. And I, so many times I get people saying, Pharaoh, uh, uh, you know, pastor. That was a kid with a P. <laughs> <laughs> it began with a P. Just the wrong word came out of that mouth. But many times people say, pastor, I'm never going to get married. This world is terrible. Why would I get married? And if they do get married because <laughs> the guy wants to get married and the lady wants to get married, they go, we'll never have children because this is a terrible world. Why would we raise a child up into this terrible world? And what are we going to do? How are we going to protect the child from the government and making passing rules and royal laws and all these kinds of things? We see that today, do we not? But I look and say, go back and read the scripture here. Can you imagine if Aram... And Jacobet went on fear of the government and didn't have baby Moses. Think about the, the, the sequence of events through the scriptures as you know the scriptures. God was raising up this boy Moses to be the deliverer of the nation of Israel to bring him into the promised land, which then would lead to what? The deliverance of the Messiah, our deliverer. So you, you have to trust in God not in what you see, but by faith and live for God and what he wants you to do as a man and a woman married to have children. Trust in God and he's going to protect that ch those children and I give you the wisdom and the protection to raise those children. Even in a wicked, fallen world that we find ourselves in. God is in control, my brothers and sisters. Now think about this. This man we're going to see, Moses, he starts here with a man who is from the house of Levi, who marries a woman from the house of Levi. They both have Levi genes. Isn't that interesting today? <laughs> and she protects this boy for three months. And they're living by faith, trusting, even in this most dangerous of time for Jewish babies to be killed it didn't stop them from being blessed by god with this child and we now know the rest of the story right as we continue to read through we'll see that moses become a great man of faith as well when did that great man of faith start with two faithful parents living for for god so as parents do you want your children to be a man or a woman of faith? Then you must be parents of faith. 
Your kids must see God working in and through your life at the high points and at the very lowest of points. They must see you live by faith and not by sight. Not living based on fear, but based on faith of what God can and does and will do through your life and their life. And then when they raise up and they're ready to depart from the family and move on as God's design, they will remember the lessons that they learned and were taught, not by your words, not by your words only, but by your actions. It must be demonstrated and lived out in your life, a life of faith. That's how the next generation will be strengthened to deal with a fallen world until God calls us home. Amen? So now we see, we continue here in verse 3, but when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrussels for him and dabbed him with asphalt and pitch and put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river, river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Interesting part of the scripture here. Yes, you all have children. If you had children, you know you can sit there and take that little baby and you're like, oh, the baby's getting restless and you start nursing that baby. Get the bottle and you start nursing the baby. Keep the baby quiet. And you can do that probably for the first three months, can't you? But after about three months, that baby gets old enough, you're not going to stop that crying. It's just going to be loud and everyone's going to know there's a baby in her area and it's going to draw attention. And she finds in the scripture she can no longer hide this baby boy. And so what does she do? She actually complies with the intent or at least close to the intent of what the law of the land was, which was if you have a baby boy, throw it in the river. Look what happens here. God gives this woman, these parents, wisdom to create what we call in the scripture here, the word here is ark. He takes the, the papyrus materials that were available. She creates this and then puts what? Asphalt, pitch, tar on the outside to make it waterproof so it will float. Where do you see that one word in the Hebrew original word, word ark also in the scripture? But Noah's ark. It's the same ark. It's the same word used here. God created and put on the heart of a man, Noah, to create this ark, this, this protective floating vessel for him to preserve life. And he seals them up and he brings them through a major storm of life. Literally. These parents seek God and I believe in my heart that God has taught them the story or the fact, the historical account of Noah and God replays that in her and his mind and they too said, we too, we're in the middle of a storm, let's put this baby in a ark, this boat and cover it up, seal it up for, to protect it and we'll put it in the water and we are going to trust the life of this baby boy that God gave us, it's God's child, 
we're going to protect, he's going to protect that child. It's his child. Remember, God gives us children. They're on loan to us. We raise them up in the ways of the Lord, but they are then move on from that. So it's God's children who he blesses to you for you to then be used by God to raise them up. They understood this. So she took a step of faith, and, and they took a step of faith. As we know in the scriptures here, we know in the, uh, in, uh, in, um, it's drawing a blank on the scripture here. But anyway, it doesn't matter. It's in Hebrews chapter something, and it, it's not coming back to my mind. I should have wrote it down. But it emphasizes the point that these parents together said we're taking a step of faith. It wasn't just the mother making this decision. It wasn't just the father making this decision. But together in unity, they made a decision. This child is God's. We're going to create this ark. We're going to put it in the water. And we're going to trust what God's going to do. It's in his hands. I have no control. Are we get to that point where, as parents? That it's God's children. We do it God's way. And God's in control. And God is going to do a work in that child's life. And do what he needs to do according to his purpose and plan. It takes a lot of pressure off as a parent. When you know that you can continue to seek him and he will give you wisdom how to raise that child. It's amazing. But in a, in a literal sense, Jacobed put that baby in that little ark, put them in there, and look what happens here. How is it planned? Was, uh, we see that there was a girl there, a sister of this baby. This sister we know is Miriam. Miriam and Aaron were the two older siblings of this baby. Miriam is about 10 to 12 years of age at this point in time. We see that in Exodus chapter 7, verse 7. We know Aaron as well, based on the scriptures, that he is three years older than uh, this baby who becomes Moses. So here's these two siblings having conversation. They know the, the laws of the land. They're watching their parents take their little brother and putting him in this little ark, covering it up, putting it in the river. And Miriam, who's old enough to see and observe, what, is he, what does she do? She's standing off and watching, the scripture says, to see what was going to be done to him. She just knew something wasn't right. Mom was going to do something with the baby brother, and she didn't know what. But watch God even use this little girl of 10 to 12 years old, Miriam, in the purpose and the plan of God. Look what happens. Because now the daughter of Pharaoh comes down to bathe at the water. She's doing her ritual bathing. She's down there at the water. And her maids are walking up and down the riverside to make sure everything is safe. And watching over her while she's bathing and taking care of herself there. And she saw the ark among the reeds. And she sent her maid to get it. But look what happened. She opened up the ark and saw the child. And behold, the baby wept. And she had compassion. Why is that significant? Wouldn't everyone have compassion? Not if you're a, an Egyptian that was raised up that says, those Hebrews do not have nothing to do with them. They're low class. They're, we, they're, they're nothing to us. They're just our slaves. They're just nothing. But look what God does in changing the heart of this person, this Pharaoh's daughter, and says, and has compassion as she looks at it. And it's not like, ooh, maybe it's an Egyptian baby. No, she knew clearly, as the scripture says, this is a Hebrew baby. And it's a boy, and she knew the law. So what happened? 
verse 7, then his sister Miriam says to Pharaoh's daughter. So she obviously was close enough to come down very quickly and say to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Tremendous faith that this child took. She's a 10, 12-year-old Hebrew girl going down and confronting Pharaoh's daughter. That, was never heard, that would not be heard of. But she was driven by God to go and say the exact words, do you need a Hebrew woman to, to raise that child up? And what does she respond in verse 8? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the, maid, the maiden went and called the child's mother, Jechebed. Miriam's own mother. The child's own mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. Now this is an amazing story. You think your life is changing. You're about to lose your, 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 your baby. You're about to lose your baby. You have no control. You have to do this. There's no, or you're gonna, the whole family's going to die. She takes a step of faith, her and uh, Amram, and puts that baby in this ark and trusts that God is going to do a work. I believe God was guiding them. They just were obedient to what God was showing them. They did it. And not only by God's mercy was that child saved, but look at the grace of God. God orchestrated that she could still be the mother of that baby and nurse that baby up to it until the point where she has no longer nursing or care for as a woman, which is about ages, age three to four. But not only that, God says, shows grace and actually pays her to actually do it. Now, I'm telling you, my brothers and sisters, if you don't understand God and how he works, when you take a step of faith, God takes this really horrible situation that can happen in your life and turns it for good for those who love him and it's according to his purpose. Do you see it played out here in the Old Testament in Exodus? They took a step of faith. God took this horrible situation Turn it to not only good, but great. Because it was according to God's purpose. And God is faithful to bring you through that. And it's by faith, not by sight. And so what happens? So the woman took, the, obviously, the child and, and nurse. Oh, sure, I can, I can struggle with this. I, I'm happy to, to change my entire schedule and, and do this for you, God. <laughs> or to, to you, uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Of course, she, it was a, she was happy as can be. And the child, in verse 10, the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying... Because I drew him out of the water, and because she drew him out of the water, his name is Moses, which means drawn out or to draw out of from. So we see where his name comes from. We see now she, this, Moses being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter into luxury, into a prince, into all the, the, the benefits that come from being in that position. But again, it took 
the mother and the, and the father faith to after we didn't come to a point where she had to bring them back, trust God, you've done a great work in protecting your baby. Now they go over here, you're going to protect the baby here, and now they know his name is Moses. Now as we see this played out, he grew up, he's growing up, he's developing, and he's, and he's, and he's there, and he's probably he's immersed into the most uh, academic and the scientific societies of the culture of that time. Everything, and you can imagine what the world offered at that time, and all the luxuries, and all the science, and all the geography, I mean the... I mean, these were brilliant people, these Egyptians back in the day. The geography, the writings, we see all the philosophy, the music, everything. Else. He was all subject to learning all of that for his period of time of 40 years in that culture. But what happened? Verse 11, now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So when you see the words here, uh, came to pass in those days, he is now 40 years of age. He's grown up. He's, we know in the scripture that uh, he was a mighty warrior. He led the uh, Egyptian army to victory over the Ethiopians. So he was trained up. He was a warrior. He was a leader. He was everything that the Egyptians wanted to see. And, the, and even the historian Josephus says that everything in indications of the history shows that he was being groomed to be the next pharaoh. That's incredible when you think about that of what is offered to Moses being a Hebrew baby, being saved. God is lifting him up into great positions with, even within the, the bureaucracy of the Egyptian government. Guess what? God will do the same thing even today. We'll take a child and raise them up into the positions where God needs them to do a great work for his plan and purpose. And so we see here, played out here, now it's 40 years of this royal conditioning. We know that in Acts chapter 7, verse 23, that we see that during those 40 years, he was completely immersed and groomed up and trained up to, by the finest to be the best for the, uh, the Egyptian uh, nation. But notice what happens, though. There's a character issue or challenge within Moses. We're going to see that he has an uh, impatient spirit about him or an impulsive spirit about him that needs to be worked out. Because what happens here is we see that he gets and he's grown up and he walks out and he looks at, his, his, he looks at their burdens of his brother in the Hebrews. They're being treated, mistreated and everything else. And we see, he sees that an Egyptian is beating a Hebrew in one of, his brothers, of his, one of his brethren to a point that some scholars say that he was probably being beaten to the point of death. And it was so traumatic in his mind. He had, an, he had a moment there where he is just springing up inside, the anger inside him. What is he going to do with that anger? Will he have self-control and deal with the situation rightly or will he have out of anger an, an, an impulsive or an impatient spirit about him and he overreacts out of emotion? Well, 
We can take a look and see what happens here in verse 12. So he looked. Notice the words here. He looked this way. And he looked that way. And any time you get to a point where you're looking this way and that way, you know your conscience is telling you you're about to do something you should not be doing. The problem Moses has is this. He looked to see if anyone was watching him. But he forgot that the God Almighty who sees all things, he did not look up and see that what God wants him to do. He did not take the time and out of all that righteous anger and he did not look up and say, God, what am I to do in this situation? He took the matter in his own hands and he thought he was clever enough. He thought he was smart enough. He thought he was royal enough. He had all the money and prestige and prominence and position. I led to armies to great victory. And this is where we'll see some challenges will come into his life because of the fact that that impatient spirit can cause some major problems in one's life. This impulsive spirit can cause some problems. And so what we see happen is what? He looked this way and he looked that way and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now he's not the only one that has a an impatient spirit. I'm sure no one here has an impatient spirit, an impulsive spirit. I'm sure you're all self-controlled by the Spirit of God and you don't overreact by emotion. But we see many examples in the scriptures. I mean, look at King David, a man after God's own heart. He had to be changed, but he had an impulsive, impatient spirit, didn't he? You know, Elijah did. We saw that in 1 Kings 19. We know Peter certainly did. Good old Peter had an, an impatient spirit about him. We know that scripture if you go back into in the book of John. Even Mary Magdalene. So it's not just men that have impatient spirits about them. Even Mary Magdalene had an impatient spirit about, him, about her. But the Bible also explains a little bit more detail of why did Moses have this impatient spirit about him and kill this Egyptian. We see it in chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, verse 23 through 25. And it explains that Moses did this. this he, he, he defended and avenged the brethren Israelite. But also, not only was he defending and, and, and avenging for this beating that this man was taking, his brethren, but we also see in the scripture that he had an expectation that his fellow Israelites would recognize him as their deliverer. He felt like he, was, he had arrived. I know all of these things. I've been groomed up. I'm in a perfect position. God, of course he can use me. But that impatient spirit, that pride, was not what God's looking for. He's looking for a humbled spirit that is controlled by God, not by his flesh. And so we see here that he was thinking he had already arrived. 
that I was going to be the deliverer of the nation of Israel. Of course God is going to use me and put, this, put me in the position. But it's interesting. Later on in the scriptures, we're going to see that this first 40 years had to be reworked in the desert for 40 years to make him a man that God could actually use. One that he realized he knows nothing, he can do nothing apart from God, and that's what God had to do in the desert experience. So what happens after he kills the Egyptian and buries them in the sand? I was thinking, wow, in the sand? Wind comes along, the sand goes away, and there's the body. I mean, I don't, but I, I, that's all they had, right? I mean, they buried in the sand. So what happens, verse 13? And so when he went out the second day, so how long did it take? The second day he went right back out. What happened? Behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. It took only 24 hours for people to know that he killed the Egyptian and buried that little guy in the sand. Question is, how did they know? Click. Well, you forget. He looked to the left and looked to the right. But he forgot the Israelite or the, the, the Egyptian who was beating the Hebrew man, the Hebrew man must have gone and told everybody what had happened. You won't believe what happened to me today. I was being beaten. I thought I was going to die. And Moses showed up on the, on the scene and killed the Egyptian and buried his body. You, that went through the, through the camp. Everyone heard the fact that Moses, the second, the most, very powerful young Prince saved a Hebrew's life. So here Paul, I'm Paul, shoot. Here comes, <laughs> woo, my mind is traveling today, isn't it? Um, here comes Moses on the scene. He sees two Hebrew brothers who should not be fighting, who should be in unity to do what God's, to survive and to take care of their faith. They're fighting with each other and he steps in like he's arrived and they call him out on it. Who do you think you are, a prince or a judge? Who are you to us? So when here in his mind he thinks he's the deliverer and all the Israelites know that he's a deliverer. They didn't see him as a deliverer. Because why? Because he was not prepared yet by God to be the deliverer. It happens in this, in this church today. Many will rise up and think you've already been arrived and you will already should be in some command position of, of elder or pastor or leader or something. You've arrived. I know the scriptures more than you. I've had more experience. I have 40 years as a Christian. And what do you mean I can't be, I can't be a leader in the church? Well, maybe it's not because you won't be a leader. It's maybe because it's God hasn't, Finish the work to prepare you to be a leader in God's church. See, God does the calling and God does the preparation for people to lead his people. It's not us that does it. You, did you get that? God's calling, God's preparing, 
And God's directing when it comes to his people. It's just the same thing with children. God's called you to be parents, to prepare you to be parents. Then you must lead as godly parents. Children do not lead. They're not prepared yet. You have to prepare them by God's grace. <laughs> by God's grace. That's how it is. We get always ahead of ourselves, just like Moses. We're ahead of ourselves, and we see the backlash. Now what happens? What happens now in verse 15 when Pharaoh heard this matter? It's only a matter of time he was going to hear it. He sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Median. And he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Median had seven daughters. Oh, he's a blessed man. And they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, How is it that you have come to, so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So we see here in the next part, Moses realizes what he realized he knew was going to happen. And he ended up fleeing because Pharaoh was looking for his head. Now we know here he goes to this place called Median, a, a land of Median. Because he had to flee, had to get out of town. But which way does he go? Does he go north? Does he go south? Where is he going to go? Because he's fleeing for his life. Maybe at this point in his life, he's like, wait a minute, this is not how I saw this playing out. God brought me to Egypt, and, and, and God had miraculously saved my life and, and raised me up, and I, I know I need to be, I'm going to be the deliverer of, this, of, the, the, of God's people. I'm, but now I'm fleeing for my life, and I'm leaving, and Pharaoh's trying to, going to take, my, take my head off? This is not how I thought it was going to go. Has that ever happened to you in your life? Where you found, I think I've got this 10-year plan that I'm supposed to have. My five-year plan I'm supposed to have. Because every business person tells me I'm supposed to have it. And it's not playing out the way I said it. I, I know where I want to live. I know what I want to do. I know where I want everything the way I want it. But it's not playing out the way I, I want it. Has ever happened to you? Well, then you know how Moses felt. But maybe you're not, your head's not being taken off. <laughs> no one's probably threatening your life like Moses. But we know historically, we know the scriptures, he couldn't go north because of the alliances with the, with the nations north of uh, Egypt. Couldn't go there because they would have extricated him back to Egypt and he would have been killed. So God guided him to the southeast, to the land of Median. Why? Because Median is very, very important as we see in the scriptures. Because of Moses was being a fugitive and was fleeing the land, he went to the land of the Midianites, which are relatives of the Jews we see in Genesis chapter 25, verse 2. So here he's dwelling in the land of Median. If Moses went north, we know he couldn't make it. He couldn't go to Canaan and Syria because they would have turned him in. He wouldn't have been able to go any other direction but to this southeast area of Median, which is today Saudi Arabia on the 
uh, on the east side of the Reed River, and then Egypt on the left-hand side. So he's down in the southeast area, down in that desert area where the Amenites lived. Why is that important? How do we know this? Well, finally, we see that he meets this priest of the Median, uh, Ruel. And he has Ruel, and we know by the history and the scriptures that he is a descendant of one of Abraham's other children through uh, Keturah, which was the wife of Abraham. And that's where the, the baby or the, the tribe of the Medians came from. And you go, again, back to Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 and 2. We also see this, this priest of Median, or this, this man who had these seven daughters. We know his name is Ruel, but his, also his named reference in the scriptures here in chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 1, Jethro. When you look at the word Jethro in the original Hebrew, it means excellence. So more likely, Jethro was a title, not a name. Ruel was his name. Excellence was his title for the position that he held there in that, uh, in that area of the priest of the Median. But we see that God is guiding him down into the Jewish area, friendly area. He brings him in and introduces him through this interesting situation where he is by the well, of course, in the desert. You want to get by a well to make sure you get water. We see that he's sitting there, and here comes these seven daughters coming to draw water and to fill the troughs to water to feed their father's flock. But it's interesting, those shepherds, those wicked shepherds who were not very good people, watched them drawing water and then came in and drove those women away so that they could use the water and take advantage of those girls pulling the water for their own flocks. But here's where you see a change taking place for Moses. Moses stood up and he came to the defense of those women to protect those women, to drive the shepherds out. And not only did he protect those women, he also helped them draw the water and feed the flocks and, and serve these girls. That's a change. Did you take note? Selfish men will not protect women. Selfish men will not serve. You see here, here's a man, Moses, who was raised up in a family in an environment where he was always served. He was served hand and foot, anything he wants, servants served him. God says, that is not what I need in my leader to raise, to lead my people. I need a man who is a servant, not always looking to be served. Did you know that? The characteristics of a godly man that's called by God to lead his people is one of not to be looking to be served, but the leader is to be a servant. That's what it means to, to be a pastor or a an elder is to be a servant. And so here he is showing the changes that are going to start taking place in him. He rises up and he serves these girls, protecting them and serving them. This is probably the hardest work he's ever done. <laughs> Besides going to war, this is the first time where he had to humble himself and actually, because remember that culture, women didn't have the same rights as men. So he was willing to protect him and to serve him. That is, shows you the heart of a leader. It doesn't matter, male, female, older, younger. It does not matter. You serve all. Now notice what happens. The girls go back home. Verse 23 through 25, we'll finish up here. 
Now it happened in the process of time. Oh, I missed scripture. Where did I leave off here? Verse 20, sorry. So he said to his daughters, so here they are showing up on the scene. He shows up, he, so he said to his daughters, and where is he? Now, can you imagine? You're a father with seven daughters. He's responsible to marry those daughters off. And as a father, you hear a man stepping up to protect your daughters and actually serve your daughter. I assure you as a father, you should find that man and bring him to me. Because he's a good catch. So what he does, where is he? Why is it that you have left that man? Are you crazy girls? This guy is, you don't want this guy gone. You want this guy with me. So what he says, he says, call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with, this man, with the man, and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. And she bore him a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. So the daughters show up, Dad, you won't believe. How we got back here earlier is this Egyptian Stood up for us, pushed the shepherd's guys out of the way because they were trying to take our water. Not only did he draw the water up for us and then feed our flocks, that's why we're home early. How did they know that he was Egyptian? Because he's probably still all robed up. Remember, he flee. He didn't go, but he didn't change his clothes and say, oh, I'm in, a, I'm in the desert. Let me put my flip-flops on and, you know, some shorts and board shorts and have a good time, right? He was still in his getup from his Egyptian getup. So, of course, they can look at him and say, oh, you're Egyptian not knowing that he was Hebrew. But he shows and they tell dad this, and he says, where is he? This is a great guy. Where, where, why would you let him go? And he knows a guy. Let's feed him. <laughs> you want a guy to hang around? Just feed him. He'll, 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 they'll have some food and take some time. But notice when he spends time with the family, what does Moses choose? Moses was content to live with the man. He was content. You know, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, one of my favorite verses I love. It reminds us, we should be reminded as well, that not that I speak in regard to need, Paul says, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. See, God is doing a work in Moses. He was raised up in luxury and, and privilege and, and all of everything was given to him and handed to him and, and People were at his beck and call. Now he finds a life changing, and he's now finding himself in the desert and having that entire life changed upside down. He's a fugitive. <laughs> and 40 years he lived in one place, and now after 40 years of his life of only knowing one thing, he's now put himself in a completely different place because of his impatient spirit. But again, by divine working with God's hand. He now finds himself in a position where he's got contentment. He knows that God is orchestrating his life and changing his life, and he's content. But notice in the scripture I just read in Philippians 4.11, he had to learn, as Paul said, he had to learn whatever state I'm in. I don't, whatever state, today you may find yourself wealthy, 
everything available to you, everything you need. You are just have everything. You have no wants, no needs, no nothing. Everything's great. Your health is good. Everything is exactly the way you want your life. Then be content. Because maybe a month ago or a year ago or five years ago, you were barely wondering if where your next meal was coming from. Were you as content then as well? Just because you find your state, your, the state you're now, are you content? Because it can change in a flash tomorrow or next year. You may be in a place where you don't want to be, but you have to learn that God is in control of your life as a child of God, and you need to be content. We are taught in this culture to demand and want more and, and get more, and, and you, have a, you have not only one car, you probably have three cars or two cars and, or a car and a motorcycle. And you, I mean, you, you really have to think, be content. Because the scripture says there's great gain in contentment. And you can be still, you won't be anxious for the things of this world because they're, we're supposed to keep a light touch on the things of this world. So here's a man who comes, he finds himself in this family, in a foreign land, and he says there, I am a stranger. He gets married, he gets, he's blessed with Sephora being his wife now, they bore a son. He has a son. His name is Gersom, which means a stranger. He says, I'm going to name this boy a stranger because I am in strange foreign land. I was raised in a foreign land. I'm in a foreign land. I just feel like I don't know where I belong, but God is, going to, is in control. God is in control. And I'm going to learn to be content, to be right where God has me today. When he chooses to move me, he'll move me and I'll be content wherever he moves me to. But I'm going to wait upon him and allow him. I'm not going to have this, in, this impulsive spirit or this, this, this impatient spirit because I don't know what is going to have the consequences of that. But I have to trust in God and wait for him to move me how he feels. And then verse 23, now it happened in the process of time. Now 40 years, another process of time of 40 years, that the king of Egypt died. And the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And they cried out and they cried. And, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. So just summarize it in this way. God is in control of who he's working with and what he's doing with his life named, in, 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 in a man named Moses. He's now, he's ready. It's 80. He's 80 years old now. He's finally ready at 80 years old. I hope I'm not fully ready at 80 years old. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we, we really want to make sure we are seeking after God and just surrendering all now. I don't know about you, but 40 years in the desert, man, to get trained up. I pray that it doesn't take you 40 years to be trained up to be used by God. But God's got Moses where he wants him to be at 80 years of age. He's now got his people, the nation of Israel, there in Egypt, ready as well. 
They're, they can't even pray. They can't even use words. They, all they get the scripture here is Israel groaned in bondage. Their situation was so bad, all they could do is groan in the situation they found themselves. Has that ever happened to you? Where your life is so bad, things are so terrible, that you, you, you're so out of control, that all you can do is groan to God because you don't even have words to use? in the situation you find yourself in? God heard your groans. God heard the nation of Israel. And God says, I have got them right where I need to be now. Not the fact that he forgot them. Moses may have forgotten the Israelites for 40 years <laughs> in Egypt, but God didn't. God remembered exactly what his plan is. God knew exactly how it's going to be. And guess what? Now the timing is perfect. Moses is ready. The nation of Israel is ready. Now the time is ready to continue down the journey of my plan and rolling out the plan that I've had that I established back from the beginning of time. God is in control, my brothers and sisters. And he's in control of your life regardless of how you feel at times. <laughs> he is in control. Let him have control. Be, don't be impatient. Be patient. Don't be impulsive. Allow the Spirit of God to give you self-control. And allow him to direct your lives. And that's what he's saying. And that's what we want to see. That, that these that God has got us in a position where he's moving and, and shaping us and molding us to do the, what he's called us to do for his kingdom. To be a faithful servants. I don't know about you, but I, when I get to heaven and we walk in and we're in the presence of Jesus, I want to hear those words. What are they? Well done and good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Is that speaking of you today? If not... Today's the day of a new beginnings. Seek after him. Learn to be content. Learn to trust him. Deepen your faith by getting into the word, getting to talk to him more. If you can only groan, groan. God is listening. If there's anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ on a personal level, not put their trust in him in him alone may it today be the day of salvation for you that the Holy Spirit has spoken to you by his word and is asking you to give your life over to him and allow him to come into you and seal you for eternity so that he will direct your paths Proverbs 3 5 says lean not on your own understanding but in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. And you notice the last word I love is plural for paths. You're on a path that God has you. You're here for a purpose and a reason. Let Just seek after him. Let him reveal that in due time. Be patient, my brothers and sisters. Amen? Keep your eyes on him. May we not have an impatient or impulsive spirit about us, but by having godly contentment in his plan, doing it his way.